Good morning. Trust you're having a good Sunday morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. We're going to read it together in just a few moments. Now, if you were here last week, you know this is part two of what we did last week. Um, And if you didn't hear that, I hope this won't be too disjointed for you. I don't think it will be. Um, So it just is what it is, and that's going to be okay. Uh, all these are available for you. The notes are available on the blog, theologyinthedirt.com. You can go there and see these notes. I uh, see the notes from last week. Um, YouTube has the service online. So you can go back and watch, and you can read, and you can catch up. In the series, we're studying the basics, the basic questions and answers that every worldview asks and answers. They're key. You have to ask and answer these questions. Muslims ask and answer these questions. Jews ask and answer these questions. Hindus ask and answer these questions. Buddhists ask and answer these questions. Atheists ask and answer these questions. And how you answer them is the difference between life and death. So Paul told Timothy, this young elder, the church of Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you save both yourself and your hearers. And so it's absolutely essential that we keep a close watch because here's the reality. Life comes at us a million miles an hour. We'll talk about in a couple weeks or next week. Oh gosh, next week. We'll talk about angels and demons. I just want to go ahead and confess to you up front. I've said to you before, that's my theological cave currently. I'm I'm in that cave wrestling around. So... um, It's probably going to be a low-calorie diet of angels and demons because I don't want to hoist on you 10,000 calories of stuff you're not ready to ingest just yet because I'm still learning to ingest what the Bible teaches about that. But it's absolutely essential that we understand that what happens in the unseen realm is not just hindering and hampering and harassing. It's also teaching and instruction. One of the first things that happens out of the mouth of the serpent is to use communication to throw everything off. Words matter, ideas matter, thoughts matter, questions matter, and answers matter. So the serpent and the followers of the serpent are always teaching. They're never not teaching. The question is, are we aware of what we're being taught? So Paul tells Timothy, you've got to watch this very carefully because what, what, what's contained inside there is life and death. Now last week we defined the church and we went through the scriptures to justify this definition. I'm going to read this definition quickly. Then we're going to look uh, into Ephesians 4, 1, 16 and, and ask and answer a key question about what the church is. So here's our definition from last week. A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King to affirm one another as citizens through the ordinances of Lord's Supper and Baptism and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. If this definition, the church, is what Jesus is building, Jesus said, I will build my church. If this is what he's building, what what do we need to know? What do we need to do so that we know what this looks like daily? 
Well, that's what we want to answer, and we're going to do it from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. So it's going to be on the screen, so if you would stand with me, we're going to read all 16 verses together. So I've got to remember to breathe. So when I'm reading, I don't breathe, and then I get all funky, and then I mess up, and then you feel funky because, like, do I keep reading where he messed up? So I'm going to try not to mess you up. Here we go. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Good job. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. If this is the church, what do we need to know? What does this look like daily? I scribbled after I typed all this up in my little digital pen in answer to my own question. Read the whole Bible. (laughs) Uh, And so um, if... The answer to the question, what is the church, is 10,000 calories. What we've done in two weeks is probably about 1,000 calories. So just know, we're giving you some bumpers with which you can go to your Bible and stay within those bumpers and stay within the realm of Christian orthodoxy when it comes to what the church is. So the first observation we want to make from Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 16 When we ask the question, what do we need to know about the church? What do we need to do? Here's the first observation we see in verse 1 to 3. The church must walk worthy. The church must walk worthy. Because of the great work of salvation that Paul has spent three chapters unpacking, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, this is his typical pattern. When Paul writes, he will teach us some heavy, meaty theology. And then he always follows it up with practices. Here's what we do in light of this. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is some good meaty theology that unpacks the work of salvation, what God has done for us. And Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is all about what we do with it. So Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is really all practice. It's application of the theology of chapters 1 to 3. 
And so because of the great work of salvation that God has done in birthing the church, and what he's done, Jesus' work on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, his dying in our place for our sin, this precious core of the good news of the kingdom, He's done this and he's constructed a church and he is calling people that belong to this church from every tribe and nation. People he has chosen from every tribe and nation. And this gospel call goes forward and it awakens the hearts of those people and they come to faith in Jesus. And as a result of that, there are now implications to that. And in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 4, he tells us this, that we're to walk worthy. Because of this great salvation, we're now to walk worthy. This word worthy is a fun little word, axios. And axios means weight. Uh, and, And thus an axiom is something that carries equal weight or it's something that becomes self-evident. In other words, what Paul's saying here, this idea of walking worthy is a self-evident, weighty reality. Because of this great salvation, you don't just go home and sit down, you do something now. And this is self-evident. It's true because this work is so amazing. The work of the cross, the work of the gospel is so intensely amazing. There is now something of equal weight required of us in obedience. And he says it's walking worthy. So what Paul is saying is that our lives need to carry some weight, some self-evident reality that this good news has done a transformative work. Well, what does walking worthy look like? Well, he answers it in verse 2 to 3. Walking worthy looks like bearing with one another in humility, gentleness, and patience. So I find it interesting that Paul starts there by not go share the gospel, which we need to do. Not go find a volunteer work in your town, which we need to do. But he starts, because he's talking about the church, he starts within here. And he says, because this great work of salvation has happened, you need to walk worthy. And walking worthy looks like inside this body that's very important, which is going to be the content of the rest of everything in this chapter. This body needs to walk with one another in humility, gentleness, and patience. Then he tells us we're we're also to be eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now this becomes again self-evident as we walk through because we are a body and we're going to learn that we are the body, the physical presence of Jesus in the earth. And as a result of that, walking worthy looks like our gentleness and humility and patience and being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because we are a body, we're a family. Now this peace that he's talking about is not peace from ignoring actions that don't match the axiomatic reality of what we're supposed to do in light of the gospel. In other words, if the actions stand contrary, they're not axiomatic, they're not walking worthy, that's not a thing we stand in peace over. The unity is predicated on us walking worthy. And if we're not walking worthy, then we have to deal with that. That doesn't feel peaceful, but it's necessary to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Does that make sense? So when we read this, we don't read unity unity that means blinders ignoring sin and it doesn't mean peace at the cost of the cancer of rebellion that makes sense and so walking worthy looks like in righteousness and holiness bearing with one another in humility that's hard because I'm hard to like and so are you And any self-aware person knows that we have challenges. Sometimes I think I'm, I'm right there on the edge of needing some help. 
And so we learn when we're self-aware that like I need someone to bear with me, I need to bear with others patiently because it's key that walking worthy looks like fighting to maintain the unity of this body because we have a mission that represents the head, which Paul's going to tell us is Jesus. But why do we need this peaceful unity? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 4 to 6. We need this peaceful unity because of this. Because we are to maintain, this is observation number two, we have to maintain peaceful unity because we're one body. We're one body. Now, this is huge, and I need you to tune in here. There's nothing gained in the human body when its parts are attacking its other parts. This is silly, but it's just the illustration of the body we're given. If my forefinger starts attacking my eye, we have a problem. All manner of issues. Why is my finger attacking my eye? Why did my finger want to attack my eye? Does my finger have a brain or is my brain doing something that's causing my finger to attack my eye? What did my eye do to my finger? There's a problem. Because the body doesn't do that. And what Paul is saying, because we're a body, because we are to fight to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, be eager to bear with one another, we need to fight because, for this because we're one body and bodies don't attack itself. And because we're the body of Christ, we certainly don't do that to each other. And the reason is we are one body. The church being one body clearly implies that its members care for and are patient with and are gentle toward the other parts. Notice verse 4. There's one body. Paul calls the church the body. Because it's what he's about to tell us about the church as we move on through the passage. There's one Holy Spirit. You and I share the same Holy Spirit. He dwells in each one of us if we believe the gospel. There's one hope. Our hope is the glorious resurrection that Jesus has prepared for us on that glorious day that we will be raised to life. <laughs> that he will complete what he started. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So we have this same hope. We don't have different hopes. We have that same hope. Our hopes aren't built on this life. Otherwise, they would be multiple. Our hopes are that day, and we share that same hope, so we're striving in the same direction. We have one Lord, Jesus. We have one faith, faith in Jesus. We have one baptism, not many baptisms. And there is one God and Father of those who follow Jesus, verse 6. The use of the language one teaches us that the church is one body, one called out people. And remember last week we introduced this word ecclesia, called out people. The use of one teaches us that the church is one called out people who belong to Jesus. So therefore we have a kinship with every truly transformed follower of Jesus because we all have the same Holy Spirit, we all have the same hope, we all have the same Lord, and we all share the same faith and have been baptized into one kingdom. So therefore, we have that in common with every follower of Jesus around the world. And some of you may have had the beautiful opportunity to meet someone new and instantly know by the spark in their eye, the words that come out of their mouth, that you belong to the same Lord and you're able to strike up a conversation because they know and you know. That's a miracle. And what that is is... We are a body. Just like this finger knows not to attack this eye because we're all part of the same body, likewise, when we, we meet members of the body, we know. We know. And what's fun here is that we have this kinship, and our unity in one body is evidenced 
by the standard of walking worthy. How do we know we're one body? We know we're one body because we do what the Bible says when it says to be eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace as we bear with one another. Third observation we're going to see in verse 7. This universal church, this one body made up of all believers everywhere, all time, is visible, however, only through individual followers of Jesus who are members of a local church. Now, this is also equally huge. Uh, every, every observation here is huge, so I'm just going to spare you the re- repetition. So they're all huge, so, t- so tune in. The universal church is awesome, but the universal church is only visible. It's only visible through individual followers of Jesus who are members of a local church. Verse 7, I'm going to read it again because I want you to notice an important word, and it's the very first word, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now remember, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and therefore, Ephesus is part of the whole along with Philippi, as well as every legitimate gathering of God's people. That's what it means for us to be united as one body. The but that begins verse 7 is an adversative. Didn't come for a grammar lesson, I know that, but it's important you understand that. And the adversative serves to introduce the contrasting idea and cooperative truth. We might say it's a way to look at the other side of the same coin. Does that make sense? It presents the reality that two different ideas can be true at the same time if they're true. Now tracking? Everybody's minds there? These two truths are this. The universal church is one. We know that. He just said that. And the second truth is, the adversative is, the universal church is manifest by individuals being part of and invested in the local church, which makes the universal church visible. That's a, that's a lot. That's why I give you notes. The church is universal and it is also locally made up of the individual parts in relation to each other in a unified local church. That's the only way the universal church becomes visible is when they are gathered locally, connected to one another in covenant fellowship and membership, doing Jesus' mission. The church is not just universal. You can't be saved and a member of the universal church without also being a member of a local church in a manner that resembles an actual body for the purposes that Jesus gifted members to make up a local body. Go back to my silly illustration. My finger doesn't just hop off of my hand and decide to go to John's hand today because John's going to do something different today. Oh, John's going to go eat some cake today, and I like. hopefully he'll spill some cake on this finger and I'll get a taste. And Jolly's just going to eat Brussels sprouts. Don't like those. So I think I'll go over to Palmer today. How silly, right? Likewise, you can't say you're a Christian and a member of the local church and you're good without being meaningfully connected to a local manifested body whereby you receive the gifts of the Lord to be part of that body to serve the common mission of that body. Does that make sense? This is just one of the places in the Bible that makes it explicit that a Christian must be an integral part of a local church because of the nature of who we are. You can go see 1 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 13, 17 and dive into those a little bit further for further study on that. That leads us here also 
to this huge idea. And that is that, observation number four, the individual members of a local church have been given grace. This is verse seven, again, according to the measure Jesus chose to give each member. Individual members of a local church have been given grace according to the measure Jesus chose to give each member. Grace in the Bible does not equal second chances. That is a misuse of the word grace. The Bible, God clearly gives second chances, but that's not the word, grace is not the word he uses to apply to that. Grace is the gift of the power of God to his people and for his people. Here, grace is given, the power of God is given to his people in the form of gifts to the members of the church. Not just the universal church, that's what that but means. But grace was given to each individual member. We're a universal body, but he gifts individual people. The only way those individuals can be shown to be part of the whole is when they are in those gifts, connected together, using them together. And here his grace is given in the form of gifts. Notice here Jesus is the giver, not the Holy Spirit. This is not the same as the other passages in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit gives other gifts to the church. This is Jesus himself, the resurrected, ascended Christ, giving out gifts to his church. And this is absolutely huge. This fact makes these gifts distinct from Holy Spirit gifts in other places in the New Testament. No doubt the Spirit-given gifts serve the local church. That's why the Holy Spirit gives them under the direction of King Jesus. But the ascension gifts of Jesus to his church are absolutely distinct, and they're far too easily overlooked on our part. Now, not here because we've taught on this before. This is review. It's these distinct gifts... And who these gifts epitomize that make the local church the body of Christ. We don't just say body of Christ because it's a neat thing to say. We say body of Christ because of Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. It's these gifts that make us Jesus' presence in the world. And if the church is the body of Christ because of these gifts, that means these gifts are what it means to be Jesus. In other words, Jesus is all of these things, and he has given us, I'm getting ahead of myself because I can't help it, but he's given us himself and these gifts to the church so that we can be his physical presence in the world. And if we're not connected to one another using these, we can't say we're Christian tracking this is huge this is why the church matters this is why we make so much of the church Jesus gifting is not to the universal church divorced from any local manifestation which leads us to observation number five we see it in verse eight Jesus has won his church for himself at the cross, his then burial, his resurrection ascension, Jesus has won for himself a people given to him from God the Father. Jesus said, all those you have given to me. <laughs> He's speaking to the Father. And at the cross, Jesus has won their salvation. Isn't that awesome? Jesus has won your salvation because you're a gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus has won a church for himself, and the King of Kings has graced each local church with these gifts. 
Now verse 7 shifts our focus from the universal church to its visible presence in the world through the local church. And Jesus' gifting is not to the universal church divorced from the local church its manifestation in the members. There is no animating of Jesus' gifts here to us if we're not integrally connected in membership to a local church. The gifts are to make us his physical presence in the world, not for us to just walk around and talk about what we think we are. He doesn't give gifts so we can be prophets or declare ourselves to be prophets because we're loud and a jerk and believe our opinions are the definition of truth. That's not what these are for. Gifting is to the local manifested church so the gifts can be put to use in the world as we are unified peacefully on Jesus' mission. Thus, verse 8, the therefore here indicates that Paul is interpreting this psalm he quotes in verse 8. Psalm 68, 18, he's quoting this verse in application to the members of the local church as biblical evidence of what he just said about Jesus gifting his church. In other words, what Paul's saying, Psalm 68, 18 says, is this is Jesus, and Jesus has gifted his church with himself. Which, a whole side note, this is a seminary class, not for right here, but I'll just plant the seed in your mind. Learn to read your Old Testament through the lens of everything the New Testament says about it. And this is one of those examples. Luke 24, Jesus gave us a framework on how to read everything in the Old Testament. Make sense? Right? Through the lens of this good news of the kingdom. And so what Paul does here is he, he interprets rightly for us Psalm 68, 18. And Psalm 68, 18 depicts God coming as the conquering and good king that he is while receiving praise and gifts from the people he's won in his victory. Paul interprets this psalm through the lens of Jesus being that God of Psalm 68 and ascending to his rightful place as king. But interestingly, rather than Jesus taking gifts for himself, he's giving to the church he won for himself all of himself for us to receive. If you, if, if that, if, like, I don't even know what to do to you or for you if that doesn't do something in your soul. The ascended Christ did not take anything from us. He distributed himself to us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then we get verse 9 to 10, which I didn't even comment on. I just wrote a long point. <laughs> And you'll see it in bold, and we're going to skip through it. I'm going to lick in a promise because we need to move on in the text. But in Jesus coming, living, dying, rising, and ascending, he now fills all things. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he intends to fill all of creation with his manifest presence on earth through the local church. Which is one of the reasons... One, just one of the many reasons we seek to make disciples and multiply churches, fellowships gathered together doing the mission is one of the ways the physical presence of Jesus in his gifting to the church and by the Holy Spirit puts on display who he is to the world. Which is one of the reasons, just one of the many, it's important that we gather as a body, that we get together, that we come together. We don't look past these things because as we saw in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, through the church, the local church, God is putting on display to the principalities and powers and the rulers in the spiritual realm his manifold wisdom. So what's happening as you gather today is God is proclaiming to those fallen, rebellious hosts of heaven that he is more wise than they are. 
that he is king and they are not. He is Lord and they are not. He is powerful and they are not powerful like him. He is God alone. And so when we neglect that, there is a lack of display in those realms. This is part of the responsibility God has given to us as Christians. Don't be so robust in your view of God's sovereignty that you don't view rightly your responsibility and freedom to act responsibly to obey the Lord. Because what's at stake is the manifold wisdom of God displayed in the heavenly places when we gather. And when the body gets together and each part, as we're going to read in just a minute, works properly, awesome things happen. So observation number seven, we see in verse 11, now that Jesus fills all things, he has all authority in heaven and earth, and he is doing this work in the cosmic realm and here on earth, he has distributed grace, the gift of himself to his church. Since Jesus fills all things and has all authority, Jesus disperses the gift of himself in five gifts. I'm going to read them for you. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. This is the grace he's given to his church, the power he's given. He's given these five beautiful gifts of himself. Now we know these gifts are himself because in verse 15 and 16, Jesus is the head of this body he's created in this ecclesia and gifted them. And him being the head gives the body its identity. Making sense? Tracking? Since he's the head and he sits in authority over us, he's the chief shepherd, he's the head elder. Our identity is our head, which is Jesus. And since he's given these gifts, these five things to us, we know they're himself because he's the head who distributes them to us. And our identity is him. Make sense? It's huge. Thus the church is called the body of Christ. These gifts are what it is to be made in Jesus' image and particularly what it is to be a local church when these gifts are animated by the Holy Spirit and we're gathered as a fellowship on mission together. Well, how is this? Jesus is the apostle. He's the sent one from the Father. Remember these conversations Jesus has in prayer? He's the sent one. The Father sent the Son on the mission of dying for your sin and mine. And so Jesus then gifts the church with the apostolic gift of pushing the frontier of the mission. So if you have that wiring in you that says, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go, they don't know, they don't know, they don't know. That's broke, that's broke, that's broke, let's fix it, fix it, fix it. Guess what you have? You have that one. Now that one makes some of the other people nervous because we're pushing, you're constantly pushing, you're like, slow your roll, and we're like, don't have time to slow the roll. And so, which is why we got to go back to bear with one another patiently. Eager to maintain unity, spirit, and the bond of peace because somebody's pushing and somebody's always reigning. Can't fly a kite without a string. Kite wants to fly, strings what makes it fly good. So they work together in unison. Make sense? We learned that in counseling before we got married. And I was the kite and she was the string. And I used to think she's just holding me back. <laughs> and what she says, no, I'm just keeping you from flying off and becoming useless. And I'm like, fair, good point, right? And so eager to maintain unity, spirit, and the bond of peace. So this, Jesus is the sent one. Jesus is always on mission. You notice in John, they're like, we gotta bypass Samaria because those are the dirty ones. We don't do those, we don't do that. And Jesus said, no, I've got an appointment in Samaria. Let's get after it, let's go. Jesus is the sent one. The father gave him an assignment to meet that woman at the well. And Jesus said, let's go, boys, by the way, chop, chop, we gotta go. We're not going around, we're going through. He's the apostle, the sent one. 
And so Jesus gifts his church with the apostolic gift of pushing the frontier of the mission. We see also Jesus is the prophet. He always speaks the word of God rightly. You notice after Jesus taught, they were amazed because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It's because he is the prophet. He's the one who told the prophets in the Old Testament what to say. He's the one that spoke it to them, and they just regurgitated what he said. He's the prophet who always speaks God's word rightly. So Jesus gifts his church with the prophetic gift of proclaiming God's word. That's the person who always says, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Rightly understand what does the Bible say? What's the author's intent? You dive into what does the author mean? What does the Holy Spirit mean to that author in that time and place? What does that mean? How are we supposed to obey it? That's your prophet. Prophet doesn't equal loud, jerk, and opinionated. I've seen that far too many times. Loud, jerky, opinionated people calling themselves a prophet. No, no, you're just a sinner. You're sinning. And you're calling it prophetic. It's not prophetic. As a matter of fact, if you'll look at the prophets of the Old Testament, most of them were very reluctant because this message was burning in their bones. Jeremiah said, I'm tired of holding it in. If I don't say it, I'm going to explode. I have to speak this. Or they would say at times, like, I'm only, who am I? I don't want to say that. And God said, go, I'm going to put the words in your mouth. So prophets not loud and opinionated and jerky, they're often reluctant. And they carry this weight of the word of God and they're reluctant to speak it because they know what hinges matters. It's a weighty thing. We see Jesus is the evangelist. Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom and he's always inviting people to himself. So Jesus gifts his church with the gift of insiders who constantly are looking on the outside to bring outsiders into the faith and the fellowship. And we need some of those always looking, where's the outsider who needs to be on the inside? How can I get them on the inside? How can I, how can I say this gospel of the kingdom clearer? How can I articulate it better? Is there a way I can be more clear? Is there a way I can be understood better? Jesus is the shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. As we looked at last word, this word shepherd is pastor. So Jesus gifts his church with those Psalm 23 tender and gentle rod and staff wielding people who want to care for and see that people stay on the path. The word shepherd is the word pastor. That's Psalm 23 gifting. Yahweh, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. Shepherd isn't always just gentle. They wield a rod and staff, and sometimes they gotta like get in line. Gonna break that leg, better get after it. Okay. Right? But they're always concerned. Pastor is a gifting for the whole church, not an office. I want that to stick in your craw. It's time for us to clean our cultural Christian language up. It's time to say what the Bible actually says, not what is culturally acceptable and just assumed. Pastor is a gifting for the entire church, and that little tiny thing has tripped our entire denomination up. We mislabel the leaders of the church, something God never labels them, and then we have downstream issues from that. That's a result of not letting the Bible speak. Not enough prophets speaking truth, and when they do speak truth, they do to them what they did in the Old Testament, saw them in two and throw rocks at them. Because what that begins to do is challenge the authority structure of people who have everything to gain from keeping their power. And you think that don't creep into the church? 
Jesus is refining his church. Peter said that, and he begins with the household of God. Pastor is a gifting for the whole church, which means you can't put that on one person and expect everybody to receive from it. He's gifted the whole body to shepherd one another. If you don't lean into that, somebody else is getting robbed of what you should give to them and bearing with one another and eager to maintain the unity spirit and the bond of peace. That's your job. Jesus is the teacher. He's the master teacher and he teaches with authority. So then Jesus gifts his church with people who can explain the hard things in the Bible and the world around them so that the rest of us can understand them. God's gifted the church with teachers. They can read the Bible, make sense of it, understand what the author's intent was, get into the nuances of the grammar and all that good stuff and make sense of it. And they also understand the world because teaching is not just teaching the Bible, it's teaching all of God's creation. Those of you who are teachers, professors, you're a teacher, and you explain the world, you're doing holy work. Doing holy work. Jesus gifts his church with people who can do that. These gifts, listen to me carefully. This might be the most important thing I say to you today. These gifts are not leadership gifts. Back that out of your theology. Nothing here implies these are gifts given to leaders. In fact, the text is explicit. He gives these to the whole church. You've got to let it talk. You've got to let it speak. These are not leadership gifts. These are given to the whole church, and Paul clarifies that in the following verses. And the rest of it is even deeper application. So that was what. Now what follows? We see in the application, verse 12, it's the first application of this. one, the whole church is to equip each saint for the work of ministry, which is to build up the body of Christ. Notice the beginning of verse 12, to equip. Now, I don't know if you notice we're reading, Paul writes long sentences, and they're complex, and this is a long sentence, and he tells us he's gifted the church with himself, he's gifted the whole church with himself, to, to indicates Jesus' purpose for giving these gifts. He doesn't just give them for no purpose. He gives them with purpose. And the purpose is that every saint is to use the gifts or the gift Jesus gave them as their service to build up the local church of which they are a member. It's not an elder's job to equip everyone at the same level and depth they need equipping. That's impossible. I was sharing with John this morning. God just put it on his heart to come pray for me. He walked in the building and said, where are you hiding? And I was like, oh, here's where I am. And he's like, and he came over and just, God put it on his heart to pray for me. I'm grateful for that. And one of the things we're talking about is, like, I, I struggle with this. Like, there's so many things you need to know. And the best we have is a few minutes on Sunday morning, a podcast, First Sunday every now and then. That's just, listen, man, of, of the 20,000 calories you need, the little time I get to spend in front of you is maybe 500 of those calories you need. And it's overwhelming. I'm going to lie to you. It's heavy. Because I know what you need to have, and I can't get it to you. I can't deliver it to you. That's a, that's a devastating. Because I... <laughs> I have to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for what I say to you. And I fear, I fear that day, not because he's going to judge me, but I don't want to stand before him and say, I was more concerned about their attention span than just simply delivering what you said. I, man, listen, for my sake, I can't do that. 
So if you get bored, that's fine. You can get up and leave. But I'm going to stand before him and give account for what I give you. So there's just no way that that can be done. Jim can't do that. John can't do that. The elders need to be equipping through teaching, and we do. And then every other member has to be engaged in exercising Jesus' gifts for each other's building up. Paul told Timothy, what I've entrusted to you, you entrust to faithful people who'll be able to teach others also. That's four generations. In other words, the people I'm trying to invest in, the people here that I invest in, the podcast, the time we spend putting into that, you have to take it, and then you have to do something with it. That's the whole body serving one another up, bearing with one another, being gentle and patient with one another, eager to maintain the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace because we're one body. But he's gifted each of us individually to be members of one another so that we can do this work. This is one reason we need to effort for our fellowship to be the members of the local church that we're members of. Can I just encourage you, spend more time with people you're in fellowship with as a member of a local church than you do with people who aren't? Man, this whole, mm, mm, I'm get in trouble, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop. Not time for that. If we don't do that, we're not fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus gifted us, and we're squandering grace. When we put a few Christians, when we put a few Christians in a church doing what the whole church is gifted to do, we rob the whole church of exercising Jesus' gift of himself to the rest of the church and that individual experiencing the living Jesus in and through that gift inside of them for other people. There's nothing like doing what Jesus has gifted you to do and experiencing his living power in you. But if we just expect one or two people to do that, we will never taste that power. This, this among a host of other tactical and practical reasons, and I, I find myself having to say this a lot. I think for 20 years, this is something we've had to say over and over, and that's okay. Repetition is how you learn. This is one of the tactical and practical reasons why Radical Kids is a co-op and not childcare, where we just employ and provide childcare workers. It's a way to be discipled in the using of your gifts to serve the whole body. It's a tool of discipleship. It's an opportunity to grow in using Jesus' gifts in the growth of one another. Equipping saints is the whole gifted church's joyous work. A gifted and functioning church ensures the church is equipping each other 24-7, not just on Sundays or when you download and listen to a podcast or show up for, for first Sunday. A whole functioning gifted church ensures 24-7 equipping. Isn't that neat? That's awesome. It's one of the reasons I post these notes for you is so that you have something you can go on your phone, on your tablet, or print them out, whatever you need to do it, and you have them in front of you. You have your Bible, you have the notes, and you can sit down together and work this stuff out together. Sunday preaching and worship, it it equips, it does that, and it should not be overlooked. And the whole gifted church is to continue equipping the rest of the week in our radical life groups and discipleship relationships and in their domains as you live life. Second, Application is verse 13. The church is to do its equipping work until the whole church reaches maturity. 
until we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. I sat last night and I rewrote this section probably four times because I, it's just a lot to say and I was trying to get it into like a few sentences and so I apologize. <laughs> I, best I could with this verse 13. The church is to do its equipping work until the whole church reaches maturity. Our equipping work with and for each other will be until the mission is accomplished. And the kingdom has fully come, and God's will is being fully done on earth as in heaven. We know this because he says until we reach mature manhood, and that implies we're not yet mature. Paul describes what maturity looks like here, the unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and these are the fullness of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be a lifetime labor. We know this because Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that he will complete this work in the day of the Lord. So let me just say this to you. The until means this is going to be a lifetime work and it will cease on that day when we will be physically present with him in a renewed heaven and renewed earth. So therefore, we strive for the marathon of doing this until we reach maturity, which will be that day. In other words, what Paul's saying is, guys, gird up your loins. This isn't going to be done tomorrow. This will be a lifetime of labor together, which is why you have to bear with one another. It's why you have to be patient and gentle and eager to maintain unity of spirit and the bond of peace because you can get on each other's nerves. You spend enough time together, you get on each other's nerves. You spend enough time together, you argue. It's just families is what you do. It's because we are living between two gardens. Eden. And, the and in between is a bunch of desert. And in that desert, it's is, is, is full of fights, and it's full of hardship and thirst. And so therefore, he's like, guys, you, until this day, so you have to be patient with one another. Long-suffering one another, be eager to maintain unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Third application we see in verse 14 to 16, when the whole church equips one another. We're no longer tossed around by the world's deceitful schemes so that indicates another purpose, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that indicates this purpose of us equipping one another and growing to maturity. We want to equip one, one another so that we're no longer children. We don't need to be spiritual children. We need to begin to grow in our ability to think biblically, think practically on how to do those things. We no longer need to be tossed around by doctrine that's rooted in deceitful schemes. We need to be able to, when we hear thoughts and ideas that are contrary to God's word, contrary to God's kingdom, we need to be able to flush that and get rid of that and get it out of our thought and mind. The only way to do that is when we're each other equipping one another. The rather he uses here, the word rather introduces another side of the coin. He shared the negative no longer children, no longer tossed around. Then he shares the positive that comes from us equipping one another. And those positives are that we speak the truth in love. We're to be speaking the truth. Speaking the truth is how we get the result of the rest of the sentence he gives us, which is growing up into the head, which is Jesus, who's head of the church. 
Our speaking is to then be with love. So we're to speak the truth and we're to speak it with love. Here's what that looks like. Speaking in love looks like speaking accurately and for the growth and benefit of the one hearing us. That's speaking the truth in love. Accurately and for the growth and benefit of the one hearing us. And when that happens, we're growing toward maturity and we're growing up into Christ who is the head. But it only happens when each one of us are doing that. Not just me, not just John, not just Jim. Not just ministry directors. Not just Brittany. Not just the Janigas and the Galloways. Just all our other ministry directors. All you guys doing that. It's, not, it's everybody doing that together. When that happens, man, there's a dynamic that shakes hell. When you leave it to one or two people, hell's not shaking. When we do this, verse 16 tells us some amazing things about the local church. I'm going to read it. From whom? From whom? Christ, the head. From whom? The whole body. Not just a few, the whole body. Joined and held together. How is it held together? By every joint with which it is equipped. Did it say some joints? Did it say a few joints? No. It says held together by every joint with which it is equipped, meaning the whole gifted body. When each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Which means each part has to be working properly, which there's, there's no, listen, this is hard. This is one of the reasons like people avoid studying the church because the implications are pretty hefty. It means there's no room in the body for somebody to just be consuming. This is one of the reasons we hit this a lot. We did a podcast a few weeks ago on consumer Christianity. The local church is not a product to be consumed by people looking for spiritual wares. If we come to church looking for something to get, we came for the wrong reason. Jesus gifted you with himself to show up today to give that away to somebody else. Is squandering grace. And when we have that mentality, we come looking to give of ourselves. We're joined and held together by every part doing its job. And it says that we are then built up in love. So how do you get built up in love? Do that. Receive the gift of the Lord, Jesus of himself, and put it to work by showing up in each other's lives. You say, how do you know your gifts? This isn't in the notes, this is free. Show up. Please do not take a standardized test that you can manipulate and call that your spiritual gift. That is not how the Bible teaches we find gifts. Peter's clear on this. It's explicit by the implicit nature of just showing up over and over and over again. You discover your gift from the Lord by simply showing up in each other's lives. Holy Spirit animates those in the moment. Day to day, hour to hour, moment by moment, month to month, week to week. You will be gifted to do what he wants you to do in the moment when you are with one another on mission. One of the most amazing things I've been able to experience in my life is traveling around the world, working with, in hard places with our partners. 
are those supernatural moments where you're just given what you need at that moment, and for some reason it just feels more stark in those moments. And here's what I, I want you to don't hear, go on a mission trip so you can experience something more stark. It's not, not, no, 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 that's not how you do it. You get the equal experience here. The problem is here we take it for granted by not doing enough to make sure we're in each other's lives. There's something that happens when we go to those places to spend time with those folks on purpose, intentionally, because they need us, because they're alone. The Lord just does what He says He's going to do. They need you. That's why you're here. And He gives you this immeasurable amount of patience and grace. You get diarrhea. You're having to use a squatty. Dalen and I drink too much yak butter tea, and our stomachs are hurting. And we're sitting with Muslims. We're sitting with our friends. And like, when I get sick, I'm not a happy camper, but something happens. I'm able to be patient. I'm okay. And I'm not a patient person. That's just the Lord. And here's the deal. When we don't intentionally get time with each other, we don't get to experience that. It's available to us. The problem is a thousand schemes of the enemy come against us to keep us from doing this. Including sometimes this keeps us from this. Because we're so caught up in this that we stop and don't, or we don't stop and look around and say, who needs me this morning? It's more about how can I get goosebumps by singing this song or, or how, can I, how, can, how can I make sure I get something from the sermon? No, no, no. It's like, what, what does somebody need from me? What, what is God doing in this room and who needs what he gave me this morning for them? So don't let this get in the way of this. This is important. Worship is important. Gathering to sing and eat supper and hear the word and to rub life on life is vital. But in doing that, tune into each other patiently, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace and exercise that gift so that we build each other up in love. Have an eye for that. Can I just tell you something? If we'll figure that out, and I believe we're well on our way, this room might not grow in number. That's not God's metric. God's metric is never rear ends and chairs. You might, however, shape the forces unseen around you. You may very well see unbelief and strongholds broken down in sectors of our city. That could result in rear ends and chairs, but it might not. What's on display, Ephesians 3.10, is the glorious manifold wisdom of God to the world and to the unseen realm. If we can shake that, I think Jesus will give us whatever we need, and we'll receive it gladly. Let's pray, then we're going to sing to the Lord. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would take your word, make it a lamp for our feet and light for our path. <clears throat> Help us to hide it deep in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, pray that if there's anything that um, wrongfully sits heavy, that you would make it light. If there's lack of clarity, that you would make it clear. But if there's conviction of sin, that you would press into that Holy Spirit pray Father that you would grow us deeper 
and your grace to us and our understanding of it and our walking in it and our practice of it. Help us. Lord, we want what you want to give us. Lord, we want to transform people, transform families, transform city, transform state, transform nation, transform world. We want all these things. We want you because you're better than all that and if we have you, you'll pull that off through us. So we want those things. We want you because you're the key. You're the key. You're better than life. And Lord, if we don't get any of those other things, we can say it is enough because we get you. We want you. So as we wait on you, Holy Spirit, speak. Heal, guide, fix, repair. Give life. Do all the work Jesus said you would do. When you guys are finished waiting on the Lord, you can lead us.